Hello, Silvertown. Welcome to the Silvertown podcast. Let's jump on that silver train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And this evening, riding the silver train with us is an amazing young lady with an amazing comeback story. She's going to share her recovery journey with us. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about sharing my story with you guys. And we are excited to have you. So why don't you take us back and start where you would like to begin? All right. As a child, I was raised in a family. Both my parents were addicts or addicts, alcoholics, whatever you want to call it. There was a lot of abuse in my home. My dad was a very angry drunk. And my mom kind of like cowered to him a lot. And my issues started with my dad, I think, at a younger age, because I was very protective of my mom and my siblings. So I had a very, I would say, traumatizing childhood. Outside of that, I was having a lot of stuff happen at school. And in the middle of the night, I was moved due to the fact that I was attacked by a group of boys. And to keep me safe, my parents moved me. So my aunt's house in there, I got to see what like a real home was like. They took me in and and she just treated, I mean, she always treated me like I was her kid anyways. But for about a year and a half, I stayed there and life was really good there. And then my parents moved down to where I was living from Houston and they decided that I would come back home with them. But within a few months of starting my freshman year of high school, I was at a party and my dad came to the party and he kicked in the door and he ended up dragging me out on my hair and breaking my ribs. And, and then my mom, in order to keep my dad at home, and so my sister and brother wouldn't lose their dad, they dropped me off at a gas station and told me to call somebody. And she didn't want to call the cops because my sister and brother, he was good to them. And so like somebody I met at that party gave me their phone number and uh, I ended up moving in with them that night and I stayed with them all through high school. And uh, I consider her one of my best friends today. Still, her parents like took me in, paid my way through high school, like everything I needed, they paid for it. And in high school, I was an athlete and I loved playing volleyball. I was pretty good at it. And I partied like everybody else. And I was always experimenting with like whatever drugs were out. I was down to party all the time. My friend that I was living with, though, she definitely was like a full-blown alcoholic. She was about 16 years old, and she would I would see her have DTs. Like, literally, she couldn't do anything without drinking. And I wasn't an alcoholic at that moment, I don't think, but I, I just drank. I did drink till I could black out. I would drink and try to out-drink people, and, and I thought it was cool. But drugs were, I was more interested in that scene. But I could quit at any time at that point. And then the summer before my senior year going into that year, I was planning to sign my scholarship to go to TCU. I was offered to play volleyball there. And I went to a WCW wrestling match and fell 35 feet through the floor at the Astrodome. And I broke my back that summer. So that took away any chance of me having to play for that college. And at that point, they put me on Norcos or Lorsets one of those painkillers and somas. And so I spent my whole senior year like in a chair in front of a TV, like drooling because I was just messed up like all day long. I had to make up my entire senior year in the last two weeks of my high school to graduate because I I didn't go to school almost that entire year. 
And because I think because of a, I was an athlete, like everything was always overlooked. Like even before that accident, I would get in fights all the time. Other people would get ISS or kicked out of school. And, and I was like always given a little slap on the wrist and then they needed me for a game. So I didn't, I didn't have to miss school. Well, once I broke my back, it still, it still held the same weight that I was treated the same. So even I or treated better than because even though I was missing all that school, they just gave me my schoolwork. They did everything they can to accommodate me. Right. And I think part of that creates in you like this, nothing can ever touch you type thing. I was very, I wasn't angry. I just had a lot of anger in me that I would take out in bad ways. Like I would fight a lot prior to my accident and like all these bad behaviors. I never got any, like in any trouble for them. Okay. So the painkillers, once I started those, that was kind of my first taste at addiction really. Cause once I started taking them, I was able to walk and do things that I wasn't like, I couldn't walk right after the accident and I broke my back in three places. So the, the injury was pretty significant. And once those painkillers and someone's were in my system, I didn't, I couldn't feel anything and moving forward. Like I never had problem getting those pills though. Like the doctor became, I love saying this cause it's so true. The doctor was my best drug dealer. Like he gave me any and everything I wanted because I had the greatest excuse ever. And that went on for all through my twenties. I want to interrupt you real quick. When your dad went to that party and he attacked you, you were living at your aunt's house when that happened, right? I had been living at my aunt's house and that summer or the summer before my freshman year, my parents asked me to come back because they had moved out there now. So we weren't living in Houston anymore. They moved to Conroe where, where my aunt lived. And so they asked me to come back home. So I did. Oh, so you were back home. Yeah. And, and life hadn't changed there at all. Like my dad was like this angry, abusive drunk and that never went away. And my mom was this sad, like always going over things in the past that, that her whole life was, everything was horrible. It was just so depressing there. And I'm not going to say we didn't have good memories as a child. Cause what the fun thing about it was when you're, when you're a drug addict, alcoholic, you do some pretty crazy outlandish things. And we got to go on a lot of random trips and sleep in woods. And if the car broke down the side of the road, it was going to be a, a, a side of the road party. Like it was never a dull moment, but the bad stuff was my dad was just super he, I think now I know that he didn't like the fact that I stood up to him, that everyone else cowered in the house and I stood toe to toe with him at any time. And the reason that he kicked my ribs in that night was because when he busted in that door, he found out that I was at a party. My cousin was there. There were guys there. And my dad did not want me to have anything to do with any guys. So he kicked in the door and I came after him. Like I wasn't scared. I ran up in him and I punched him in the nose. And he wipes his face and he wipes the blood all over the wall. These people's house, I barely know, right? And so I run out after him. And then he, in his anger, he attacked me. But I was kind of used to that. It wasn't even that bad that it happened. But to my mom, she knew that it had crossed the line to where he was going to have the cops called on. These, this family was not going to take it lightly. So they rushed me in the car and I went with them because I was going to not say anything either. But they didn't want me in the house anymore because I was causing too much trouble. And that was kind of a normal then, right? Yeah. My mom always wanted to hold this family together, you know, that she, 
she wanted to have a home where the kids and the father and the mother are all together in a house, but I wasn't about keeping my mouth shut. And I never have been. Part of the reason why, you know, I had to leave Houston is because there was a point where I had to speak against these guys. And I did. And I wasn't scared to say what they did. But there was like, they threatened my life. And that's why I had to be moved in the middle of the night. I don't know where my life would have taken me or how much different it would have been. If I had stayed there, I might not be here. I don't know. But you were at a party that night. So you were experimenting back then a little bit with drugs. So like, I loved acid in high school. I thought it was so much fun to like go into outer space. I grew up in a home where that was not a big deal, right? My dad used my whole life. So younger, I remember like when you get messed up, it's because you're having a party and it's fun, right? Or things are really, really bad. So I'm just going to get fucked up. Like that was a constant cycle in my home. Things were great. They're messed up. Things are bad. They're messed up. So I did the same thing. I copied the behavior I'd seen my whole life. But yeah, I just thought it was fun for a long time. I'll say this. I had a lot of fun experimenting and, and when it's young and it's easy and you don't have a lot to worry about. And falling through the floor at the Astrodome set into motion a chain of events that literally ruined my life for a moment, right? Because I didn't know anything about addiction like that. Like that was normal to experiment and party and have fun. But this drug that I needed, that they told me that you're hurt so bad, you definitely need these. Like I believe the doctors and what I know now is crazy. I can't believe at 16, I was on this kind of that type of medicine, but I sued the Astrodome and there was a period of time where I lived off that money. And for that period of time, I thought I was just having a normal life. I was in my 19, 20 years old and I just went from party to party and I was, I didn't have any responsibilities and I had money to take care of it. So I didn't, I didn't take anything serious. But at one point, this guy that I was really good friends with and my cousin, it was his best friend, was going overseas to the military. So this guy that I was really good friends with and my cousin, it was his best friend. We decided to get married out of, I, I would say, more of a convenience than anything. And I had heard about people playing overseas, playing volleyball and stuff. So I, of course, thought it was a great idea. Plus, I would have insurance now. And that meant that I can get all the painkillers I wanted without paying for them. So it was great. Like for me, that's where my mind was. And so we got married and we went to Germany. And it was a lot of fun at first. And I started playing with the USAFE team, which is for the Air Force. And then I, w I played during the summer with the German national team. So I got to do like a lot of fun stuff, right? And of course, I didn't feel any pain because in Germany, it was even more dope there than ever because they sent me to like these German doctors. And so off the base, they prescribed whatever you wanted. And they put me on morphine, then Oxycontin, and then they prescribed me fentanyl patches. And God, if I only would have known what I was getting into at that moment, because within like a probably six month period, I went from following the directions on that box of patches to putting on two patches every other day. And it's supposed to be one patch three days. I was on the highest dose, which is a hundred micrograms. And I was putting these patches. There's pictures of me where there's literally sticker marks where all these patches were just stuck on me at all times. So I'm playing volleyball and and. And on the outside, it looks like my life is like just amazing, right? But what people don't know are the days that I, I couldn't get my medicine filled fast enough or I ran out of patches way too soon because I used them all like 
Those are days I'm sick and suffering at home and so depressed and not knowing how to get out of this vicious cycle of like constant going to the doctors, getting as much as I can, trying to talk them into refilling it early, like this same sick cycle I just stayed on for a long time. And drinking at that time for me was still, I drank a lot. When I drank, I drank to be in oblivion, right? But it was something I could still stop every day, I think. I would party on for three days straight and then I'd stop. And I feel like that was something I had control of. But once I I ran out of chances to continue to go to that doctor because it got investigated by the military. And so the military saw how much medication I was getting from these doctors and they cut off my insurance paying them anything. And a military doctor was like, that, that's the first time I ever like knew that I was an addict because they're like, you, you are abusing your medication and we can no longer let you go to these doctors. And they basically cold turkey cut me off of fentanyl. And oh my God, I, I had never been through detox before, but, and they didn't offer any kind of like rehab. I knew nothing about how to do this the right way. But at this point, the guy I married was over, he was serving our country. And I was pretty much by myself, but I knew a few people from the volleyball team. I played with the German national team and this old lady, one of my teammates took me in and put me in her basement. And she basically just let me, I, I don't even know. I can't even tell you how long I was there because it seemed like forever. I just remember being at the in the basement of this house and just being freezing cold and sweating and I was so sick. You were dope sick. Yes. And I didn't know what that was. I knew that I needed that medication when I didn't have it on it so good, but I had no idea that what I was about to go through was what it is to be dope sick. Like, and, and at a point where I had no choice at that time, I didn't know anybody to buy drugs from. This is just like the only option I have is to lay in this basement and detox. I make it through that detox. And I remember like emerging from this basement, like I got to get the fuck out of here because I need something. I can't live like this. I don't know what to do sober. Or to me, I don't know what to do without that medication. Like my whole body hurt. And I thought it was because of that accident, right? It must, I must be in this pain. All these aches are from me feeling these injuries I have. And I literally rode this military plane. Like they have these emergency flights back to the States because I lived on Ramstein in Germany and our air base, you just fly out of there. It was really crazy. And so I fought back to the States. And like I said, I can't really tell you like how long these things happened or I just don't know. But when I got back, I went to Atmore, Alabama, where my dad was. And all, all these years through everything, right? I've always been super forgiving. No matter what happened to me, I still, that was still my dad. No matter what he'd done, I still loved him. And also that was probably like, the first place I thought to go because I knew that if I needed to get high, my dad would help me get high. I knew that if I, at any point I needed something, he would, he would do whatever to, to, cause he would. Ever since I was a teenager, if I had a question about a drug I was doing, I could call my dad and be like, Hey, I got this pill and they're calling it ecstasy. And I don't know what it is. And he would be like, yeah, just make sure this happened. Like I knew how to do the drug because my dad would keep me informed. And so I went to my dad's and it was, I mean, I think it was the first weekend I went to Florida. Within a week or two of me being there, 
first of all, our neighbor immediately, the, the apartments my dad lived in, they, my dad had been buying pain pills from him. I had somebody immediately to get those from. But then within, I think it was a week or two that I got there, I went to Florida and I was at a club party and, and I meet this guy and this is during like the, the, the opiate pan, like pandemic. I don't know what you'd call it, but Florida was really bad off. And you were going, people were going to these pain doctors and just get tons of pills. Right. And so I, I meet this guy and I, he was like, like the, the drug kingpin for opiates in Pensacola at the time, I guess, because he takes me to like this big mansion and literally I never seen anything like this before, but there's like a little bowl of like pills. And he, that's like what he did was run pills. He's like, here, take whatever you want. And I was like, okay. So I was like in heaven at that moment. And I decided that I would start over a short period of time. I decided I would start running pills from Florida to Alabama. And that was the first time I would catch my first felony. And I was terrified, but they put me in jail. And I only was there for like, I don't know, probably five or six days. But during that that period of time, the guards we're calling my dad and being like, y'all need to get her out of here. Like she is detoxing so bad. She needs to go into treatment. And I remember I was laying on the floor, like sweating and I couldn't get up to go to the restroom. And I knew what I was going through because I had already been through it once, but I had no idea how to get help. Like nobody ever told me how to get out of this. And so my only fix was to immediately go back to what I knew. But I get out and that day that my dad gets me on, he immediately drives me to go get some pills because I'm so sick still. And so we get the painkillers or whatever, but I have to go to court and the judge, I don't know why, because the charge I had was pretty big. Trafficking drugs over state lines is not not a joke. And she saw something or or understood what addiction was. And she told me, I'm going to put you on two years probation and you're going to go to a methadone clinic. And I was like, what the hell is a methadone clinic? And I had never heard of this before. So I started taking methadone at that time. And honestly, I am so grateful for that program. The MAP program like saved my life. And today I'm not on it, but at that time, that's the only thing that would have got me out of where I was because I was still young and I wasn't ready to, like, I didn't know how to live a normal life without some kind of substance. So you used the methadone to detox off the pills again? Yeah. Well, there was no real detox, right? So when you get on methadone, you're just, it's a maintenance program. What I can tell you is that I could function. I wasn't chasing pills anymore. There wasn't days I was going sick and willing to rob somebody. Like it changed my life in the way that I I could function. I wasn't high as a kite every day, but I was I I felt well enough to be able to do some normal things for once and like not be willing to I, I didn't care before. I would have robbed you. I would have stolen from my grandma. I I didn't care. So like during this time I'm I'm all like I feel like ever since I was younger, because of the life I lived, I was very nomadic. Like I would just move from one place to the next and I didn't care what I left behind and very like gypsy, like, and I get on probation and I'm like, I want to go back to Houston now. So I, I moved back to Houston and I'm like sleeping on different people's couches. And that was all cool to me. Like not, I didn't question that. That was like so normal to me. Cause you know, when something went wrong, I just went to the next spot. And there was never a point I feel like I was ever settled into life. There was never a point I had a home. And 
and even understood what it was like to have a job like what was that I didn't know or like to to take care of myself all by myself there was always someone there I could turn to getting back over here I started doing things that for a period of time I was partying a lot I started waitressing I had a job for the first time but there was just a lot of like I was still living the same lifestyle I was before I just didn't have to search for dope anymore and this is when drinking became a problem because now that I have my 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 dope fix all the time I partied my ass off because I wasn't spending money on pills anymore it was taken care of every month by the methadone clinic and so I would just party all the time I drank all the time I, there that there's periods of time I have no idea what I was doing until somebody showed me a camera roll because back then you had to get it developed and so then the the pictures would come in from the prior week and I was like oh my god like that's what I'm doing I had no idea because I was just in in a whole nother frame of mind during that time and I didn't have anything really no purpose nothing really to live for but at some point I ended up moving in with my sister and my sister is and her husband have been together since she was like 17 years old and so his his nephew comes into town from the marines he had just finished his time in the military and he come to he came to live with my sister and my brother-in-law and i've known him since he was like 16 years old and so he's like three years younger than me and we were friends but during this this he was supposed to go back to california to marry this girl that he had met while he's in the military and we end up hanging out for like a period of time and he ends up never going back to California and we end up like falling in love. And he asked me to marry him within a, probably a year of us being together. So during this whole time I'm on methadone and this is the first time in my life I start feeling like I want a home and I want to be stable with someone. And I, I love this person. We end up getting pregnant before I ever we ever get married and that kind of rushed us into getting married like the day we found out no it was like a couple of days later I'm like oh my god we're having a baby we we have to be married it's like I thought it was against the law to have a baby without being married we ran and got married and that's 2008 is when we got married and that's the point my life became like amazing like this person was one of the most amazing people I've ever known in my life and I was very blessed to have him by 2015, we had our second son and our life was great. We had a house. He had a great job. I was a stay-at-home mom. Like all the things I never knew I wanted and and really always wished I could, I guess. Like I never knew what it was like to be like in a, like I created a home I never had. And I got to be like the PTA mom and I got to just, I don't know. It was awesome. Anyways. So this is the first time in your life where you felt like you had a home. Yeah. Like, like I was happy and it was stable and safe. And so he ends up getting diagnosed with brain cancer after having a seizure at work. They had a seizure in a bucket truck. And I got a call that day. There was at a hospital and I walked into the hospital room and he was the one to tell me that they found a brain tumor. And I'm holding our, our nine-month-old son and our five-year-old. And I'm completely devastated. All of a sudden, everything that I thought I would have forever was ripped away from me. Because I thought that if you have a brain tumor, like you're just going to die. Like They said it was a huge mass in his head. So I didn't understand 
but it was way worse than than that like just a brain tumor that they could remove because he had glioblastoma which there's no cure for right before that though after i had my son my second son i started having health problems myself and prior to him even finding out about this brain cancer they had told me that i had a thing called cervical dysplasia so i started going to the doctor and they're like telling me I need a treatment for this. And there was a lot of things going on with my health. But then his seizure happened and we found out about this tumor. Of course, my stuff stops. Like that's not even important anymore, but but I'm fixing to lose my husband is what they're telling me. So he has brain surgery, gets into chemo and radiation. And as a child, I was, I was raised Catholic. I call myself a recovering Catholic because of the trauma that that religion caused me. But all of a sudden when he got sick, I found God again, or at least because I needed him at that moment. And I turned back to begging God, like just begging him not to take away my husband. And I just had this faith all of a sudden that God was just going to save him. Like I thought it was going to be a miracle story. And he was always so strong and like stoic and happy. And, and he didn't like shut down when they told him that he was terminal he decided, okay, well, we're just going to enjoy life every single day to the fullest. And and we did. We spent two years like living a great life and having so much fun and spending time with our kids and making great memories. So after he found I had the brain cancer and he's fighting, he looks normal on the outside, like everything's perfect. And so I think that the prayers are working and that God's going to save him. So I had went back to the doctors. And at this time, the reason I went back to the doctors is because I had um, something called a thyroid storm or it's thyroid toxicity. So my thyroid, I had Graves disease and they rushed me to MD Anderson because that's the hospital he was at. And they rushed me into the emergency room and I almost have a heart attack or a stroke because my thyroid was causing my heart to like overwork itself. I'm put in the hospital. I start seeing these doctors at MD Anderson. So he's in treatment there. I'm in treatment there. We get to, we're literally living in the medical center. We got to share rooms together. Like it was, it was, if he wasn't at a doctor's appointment, I was at a doctor's appointment. We were together every single day for two years. They tell me one of the things they found out while I was at the hospital, that cervical dysplasia had signs of cancer in it. My white blood cell count was low and they needed to take out my thyroid. So I go in a, a month or two later to have um, full hysterectomy to remove this so this cancer can't spread. And and they're about to take me back on the gurney to go into surgery. And I said, can y'all just give me a pregnancy test? And I don't know what made me say that or anything, but they're like, he can't get you pregnant. He has like no sperm count. He's been doing chemo and radiation. And they know you both really well. Very well. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were friends with like so many people in that hospital because we were there so much. And so she's like, okay. So she gives me a pregnancy test and they leave us out there for like two hours. And I was, we were just sitting there like, okay, something's definitely wrong. We might be pregnant. And then they told us we were, the lady looked at me and she's like, you need to have the abortion right now. Like you can't keep this baby. The medication you're on will cause, cause holes in his brain because I was on a thyroid medication that could could literally cause damage to the baby's brain. And my husband's like, hell no, we're not going to abort this baby. Like we thought it was a sign from God that everything was going to be okay. And my pregnancy was great. And I don't know, I was like on cloud nine. I, I remember being so happy during that time. 
because despite all the health stuff that was going on, like it was, it seemed like, like a dream to have your husband every day and you're happy and like your kids get to be with you and we're about to have another baby and like nothing could go wrong at this time. Right. I have my son and he was premature. One of the problems I had during my pregnancy was that my heart started going into congestive heart failure. I had cardiomyopathy and my heart, I had to go on bed rest. They didn't want me doing anything. It was a month and a half prior when this started happening. And we found out it was due to my thyroid overworking it. And I'm pretty much on bed rest. And then one day they do my blood pressure. They rush me in the hospital and it's emergency C-section. And I have my youngest son, but when they took him out of me, my heart flatline like I died when they took him out of me and come to find out his heart was like 10 times bigger than a normal baby's heart because it had been keeping both of us alive that still amazes me like his chest I remember he was all red and his chest was huge and he looked like super like I thought about like Superman this big chest sticking out and and there was a shirt little hands big heart and we were like man you got the biggest heart ever because he was keeping me alive his heart was enlarged because it was keeping you both alive because yours couldn't keep up. Yeah. So they said, imagine a, a person working out a muscle constantly and hard, going hard at it every day. Their muscles expand and grow and your heart's a muscle. And my son's heart was what was keeping me alive. Yeah. He was in uh, NICU for, I think, about a month. And then a week after he got to come home, I had the emergency surgery to take out my thyroid because my health was like steadily declining at this time. But still in my head, none of that mattered. Like we were still like so happy. They're telling me things. I'm like, whatever, like we're going to prove everyone. This is all going to be a huge miracle story, right? His heart went back to normal size after this, right? Almost immediate, like within a day, like literally a short period of time, his heart went back down to the normal size. It was literally a miracle like it's it's crazy if you read the reports and like hear what the the doctors and the nurses were saying like he was a miracle baby 100 percent. because if you wouldn't have had him you may have died for sure because the thyroid we didn't know until i have the surgery when they take it out i have tumors on my thyroid what they didn't know is that i had microcarcinoma which is a type of cancer and it was causing my Graves disease, it's an autoimmune disease. And people don't realize how bad it is to suffer from a disease like this. I still deal with a lot of the side effects of it. Like I can't gain weight. I'm always hyperactive. These are things that are actually brought on by Graves disease. And they they change your whole body, like your hormones. It, it messes with all your hormones. And so I was falling apart, right? But on the outside, everything looked great. I had my thyroid removed. We found out it was thyroid cancer which is not a big deal. Thyroid cancer is it's easy, curable. It's just a surgery. So fast forward, we were planning on going out of town from where we live to go see the fireworks. And he went to breakfast with his grandparents at their house with my two oldest ones. And I was at the house with the baby getting ready for the trip. And I get a call that they that he went to the restroom and he hasn't come out and they can't open the door because he's like six, four and his head's hitting one wall and his feet are against the door. So nobody could get in. So I rush over there and I find him on the floor, like unconscious. And he was making like a snoring sound, but I didn't know what a death rattle was. I didn't know any of that stuff. I just thought he had passed out due to the medication he was taking. We got an ambulance there, but I'm videotaping the whole time because I think I'm going to show him later. Like, 
watch out how much medication you take so this doesn't happen again. I had no, it did not click to me at all that this was the last time I would see him. And so they fly him to the medical center and I'm about two hours away. So by the time I get there, all my family is at the hospital already. And there it was like the worst thing to walk into. Because I could tell by everybody's face, especially the doctor, like he knew me personally. And he couldn't even look me in my eye. He looked down immediately. And he was on life support already. And I just remember like jumping on top of him and screaming. Like my mom said, it was like this blood curdling. I don't remember. I just like, I don't remember what I said or anything. I just remember in my head, I was praying like, God, please don't do this. I don't want to be a single mom. I don't want to live without him. Yeah. My youngest son was nine months old when he passed away. And he passed away on July 6th of 2018. And I don't know, something in me like obviously died. Like he was my whole world. I built this whole life around this person. And you expect to like spend your whole life with them. And every, all these things you imagine. And then even though we were fighting this terminal illness, I just still had hope. And I thought God was going to save him, but he didn't. So I, I think anger sudden I I hated I I would say I hate God like if there's a God I hate him because he's a liar he took him away why would you do this to my kids all the things you feel and say when you're in grief but we buried my husband he's buried on on our property and two weeks after he buried him my cousin who I haven't talked about but she was my best friend she was like my sister and um Prior to him passing away, we had a what if plan. And it was, what if he passed away? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to move in together and raise our kids together. And we have three kids and they're all close in age. And she had just had a baby and her little girl was six months old when we got the call that she was found dead. It was a fentanyl overdose, but it was considered a murder because the shot was done in her neck and then she was beaten to death. And it wasn't something that she would have done. She did do drugs. She did meth. And I knew that she was in addiction, but I had thought she had, since the baby, I thought she had been sober while she was pregnant. And I didn't know that she had went back and started using. That's a whole nother story in itself. So I'm not going to get into that, but I was devastated. Those are the two closest people in my whole world. My husband and my cousin were like my right and left arm. And um, if I wasn't with one, I was with the other. And I kept thinking, now I have six kids that don't have the best parent out of the two that they had because her her husband was very, very bad off at the time. And I just didn't think I was good enough to be a single parent. And so I was in a lot of anger, grief. I was in postpartum. I was having health problems. And I just decided I just didn't care anymore. I died. When they died, all that happened in July of 2018. And I died that day. The, the person that I was becoming or had been, she was dead. And I just didn't know what to do next. And so I, I couldn't get out of bed. I'm staying at my sister's house. I literally moved out of the house we were living in in the middle of the night. I took what I could. I left the rest behind. That nomadic runaway spirit just kicked in and uh, I ran and I ran to my sisters. You didn't want to be in that house 
because that's where all your memories were with your husband. 100%. And the town we were living in at the time is owned by his family. Like they owned all the land out there. And I knew everyone was going to like want to talk to me and try to make me feel better. And I just wanted to run away. And so I did. I left. And plus another thing, I didn't even know how to take care of myself or my family. I didn't work. I didn't know how to pay bills. I had no idea what water company or like, I did nothing. Like I literally was oblivious. And it's crazy because when he passed away, I learned so much, even more respect than I already had like all the respect in the world for him. Right. And then I find out like, he's not just taking care of me and his kids. He's taking care of his parents, his brother. Like when I saw our bank statements and I started getting into like our finances, like this man was freaking amazing. And I don't know how he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders while he was dying. And I never saw him mad. I never saw him sad about it. I remember one time we would ride to treatment together in the car and and I asked him, I was like, do you believe in God? And he was like, I have no doubt there's a God. So on the way to the hospital, I remember us praying on the way there. And he was a private person in his in his relationship with God and we sporadically went to church. But I remember him turning to me, he was like, I'm not scared at all because I know where I'm going. And I remember him praying with me for the first time we had ever like held hands and said a prayer. And I had so much peace in that moment. And I remember no, like just knowing like he is going to heaven. Like I don't have to worry about him. And I believe that gave me a lot of peace for him. But the human part in me, the per the person, like my spirit was dead with him when he passed away. And the human part in me had all this selfish wants and needs. Like, I love this person. Like, how could you take him away? My children need a father. Like the things we do when we love someone we di that dies, we don't care really where they're going. We just want them for ourselves. And so that fact that he was in a better place completely eluded me. So it didn't take long. Like I bought a house not long after he passed away. And within a year, I quit going to my methadone clinic and I had been on methadone this whole time. So I was on a methadone program. I had three children. None of them were affected by that medication. And I truly believe that the reason I had such amazing life during this time is because I no longer was in those addict behaviors. I didn't have to worry about being sick. I wasn't chasing pills. Like none of that was going on. I lived a great life for, I could say 10 years for sure, like straight, happy, great life. So that's how long you guys were together before he died around 10 years. So my, my, my point is that you knew what it was like to have a home now because you didn't know what it was. And you got into this space where you knew what that was like. And when he died, you felt like you lost all of that, right? Oh, I definitely did. I didn't because I didn't even know how to live without him. My whole world had been built around this man, right? And he was so perfect that I never considered really what life would be like without him. And I didn't know how to what I knew how to do was run. Running to my sisters. And then I think a little less than a year I decided to buy um a place and we put it out on this property that I share with my brother-in-law and my sister. And we had buried him on the hilltop there. So he was right there next to us, right? So I get a house, but but I quit going to the methadone treatment. I'm really, really, I, I feel like the depression and the grief got worse over time. 
because I didn't know how to deal with it. And then just anger set in. And then I was having a suicidal ideation and I was just imagining how much better my kids would be if I was just dead, like just horrible thoughts. And I stopped going to get my medication from all my doctors. I stopped going to treatment for my cervical stuff. I just like dropped out of normal life. And I decided I was just going to start getting high. So I went back to these things that I remember when I was younger. I had a lot of fun when I was high. Things weren't that hard when I was high. And everybody's doing meth where I was at. So I was like, okay, I'll jump on that bandwagon. And throughout the years, even for instance, my mom, she struggled. She was a full-blown alcoholic my whole life, but she jumped into drug addiction at 40 years old and she was smoking crack. And so like, I've been around this stuff my whole life, but I had thought I'd beaten those odds. And then this happened. And I just, I remember telling my cousin all the time before she had her last baby, I was like, how could you leave your babies? Like, how can you go shoot up drugs? Cause she had started using intravenous. And I was like, that's disgusting. I'd never do that. And like talking to her, like she was such a horrible person. Right. And I can't believe you let go of your house. And, and I loved her more than anything. And I, uh, I think that I said those things because I was, I loved her children too. And so I took out some things on her. I really regret, but it's crazy when you start doing that to other people, what happens to you is every single thing I said I that I never thought I'd do, and I was so mad at her for, I did every single one of them and worse. Like I, I was way worse than her. Um, I ended up losing the house. There's a person that got into my life. He came to do a tattoo. He never left. He was a multiple convicted felon who was definitely like someone that preyed on people. And he knew that I had money from, from my husband passing and he comes to my house for a weekend and then he never leaves. And what people don't know at that time is I was already on the verge of wanting to die. Anyways, I'm using, I'm using these drugs. I'm eating meth every day, like eating it. And, and he comes into my home and doesn't leave. And I wanted people around at that time. I had like four people living with me that didn't have money or a place to go, but the, I would, they were my best friends at the time. And I, I just didn't want to be alone. And I was so alone with three little kids. And so I let the wrong people into my life and he eventually got all of them to move out. And then it was just me and him and my kids. And I knew pretty quickly that I was in a bad situation, but I didn't know what to do about it. He started like he had a room down the hall for me and he started like trying to come in my room at night and just different things. And I was really uncomfortable, but I also didn't care about myself, but I cared enough about my kids. So I'd let my sister, I told her, I asked my sister to take the kids. So I wasn't doing well. So she's next door. So I know they're safe, but that's the first time a, a, a needle was introduced to the situation. And once that happened, my, the devil had entered my veins. Like, I don't know any other way to explain it, but I had no moral compass. I had, I didn't care anymore. I loved my children with all my heart, but I didn't think I was good enough to be their mom. and I. I just was mad at God. And then I can't blame anything on anyone because I made all these choices. I put myself in this situation and this person began to abuse me. I was in and out of hospitals for all the times that he busted my head open with a two by four. He, at one point he ends up kidnapping me and they put like bulletins all over Facebook. My family's looking for me. No one can find me. He had dug a hole under this bridge by this creek that we live by and took me down there and was going to kill me. 
And I'm so messed up in the head that I, I don't know how to get out of this. Like, I don't know how to get away from this person. We're constantly calling the cops. I try to get them removed from my home. Like nothing was working. All those times before when things came so easy and I always had a way out, I no longer had any way out. And nobody could tell. I mean, people knew I was bad off. Everyone knew that something was wrong, but they had no idea to what extent. And so during this time, I'm really bad off on drugs and I end up starting to catch felony charges. I'm getting arrested left and right. Meth possession, uh, manufacturing, delivery. I'm in and out of jail. And I decided to go on the run at one point because that's smart. And so I decided to leave my house and leave everything. And, and I decided to be homeless. And I go and live on the streets of 1960, uh, which is like, always lit up it's one of those like it's on the outskirts of the city but it's almost like the dragon vegas like there's just stuff tattoo shops and piercing shops and and i was doing a lot of like gambling we don't have gambling in texas but we have these things called ping machines which are like in little gas station back rooms and you gamble on them and that's where all the tweakers and the alcoholic that's where everybody hangs out and so i was living my life and it's during covid Not a lot of people are out there. I'm out there running the streets, sleeping in front of the beauty supply shop, looking like a hot mess. Like I am living a life I never thought I would ever have turned to. You're not in your home anymore. No, I just walked away from it. And everything, I I lost everything eventually. But um, I'm on the run. I, I get arrested another time and I catch a child endangerment charge. So I was on pretrial probation and I failed the probation. I catch a child endangerment charge and another present, like it was just bad, right? So I end up staying on, on 1960 homeless one night on my birthday. And I was in a bathroom of one of these little gambling rooms and I did the shot. And as I'm doing it, I know immediately that it's not meth, that it's something else. And fentanyl was getting really bad at that time. And so I do the shot and I literally half like just push it in and I know I'm going to die. Like it's this weirdest feeling because if you do anything else, like anymore, you're dead. Like you're not coming back. And I remember just everything just going dark and I was out and um, I didn't wake up till two days later, but there were people there, thankfully that had Narcan. They were aware the person that gave it to me, I know knew had fentanyl in it. And I feel like they tried to say they didn't afterwards, but whatever. And so they actually ended up killing me and then saving my life. So you literally died. Yeah. And I don't know what happened until the 28th when I woke up. From the 26th to the 28th, I'm completely, I have no idea what happened during that time. But when I come back uh, that day, I had been wanting to die all along. I wanted so bad to die because I was dead inside. And then I died and all I wanted to do was live. Like I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I wanted my kids back. I wanted my life back. And I was at that point, that was my desperation, right? And I'd said, and, and so it was June 26, two days after my real birth date was my rebirth date. And, and the old me died and the new me was born. And that meant that I was going to have to do a lot of things different. Like I was going to, I was facing 10 years in prison with the charges that I had. And of course, that's terrifying. I've been in a county jail, but I've never been to prison, right? And so I'm I'm just terrified. But I knew I kept calling my dad and one of my best friends. And I'm like, 
I don't know what to do, but I just want my life back. Like, what do I do? And they're like, just turn yourself in. So there's a, about a month period where I'm still roaming the streets of 1960, not using, I'm sober, but I'm still just this lost like soul. Like, I don't know how to do this and I don't want to turn myself in. But it, I guess God was working on me at the time. And I end up calling my mom. I want to, I know in my head, I want to see my kids before I go to jail. So I uh, asked my mom, on my husband's birthday, that's where I was trying to make it to, that if I could at least see the kids, I would turn myself in. I get to see them, and then the next day, my mom and dad, who are divorced for a long time now, they they take me to the jail, and I decide to turn myself in, and it was the most freeing moment. Like, it's so crazy. You think you're walking into this darkness, and this it's going to be horrible, and all I know is I'm going to a place that has a bed where I could sleep, under a roof and there's going to be food there and I'm going to be safe. And so it wasn't, to me, it wasn't so horrible anymore. And I walked in and they put on those handcuffs and they walked me behind the bars. And I felt like a huge weight had just been lifted off of me. And that's, I call that like the moment I surrendered, literally both physically and mentally, I surrendered. And because of the behavior that I had Prior to turning myself in, I was put on a on a row of single man cells, kind of like solitary confinement type thing. You're just by yourself all day in a cell, except for there's a day room and they let you out for your shower and for food. But the rest of the day you're locked up. So I'm in this single man cell with the person I hate the most and I don't know what to do with myself. And but it's so weird because like I was happy to be going in another direction. I just didn't know what that direction meant. And then this little old man would come by every day and he brought this little book cart and he kept asking me if I knew who God was, if I believed in Jesus. And I was like, yeah, I know him, but he hates me. Like he took my husband. I'm this self-pity just constantly. I didn't know how to get out of it. And I was angry and resentful. And I'm telling him, yeah, I know him, but he's all, he, he hates me. I, I've sinned too much. He'll never forgive me. Like all these things. And he's like, just read this book. And so he gives me the Bible, which I'd never opened in my entire life. I do remember seeing my mom every now and then when things got really bad, grabbing a Bible and like reading it. But I never saw anything good come from any of it. And I started reading that book and a lot of shit did not make sense. I did not know what I was reading. It all sounded like a bunch of made up stories and a bunch of like names I couldn't pronounce. And so I'm just reading and he keeps telling me, he was like, just, just read until something stands out to you. And so I would read, but then I started noticing little things would stick out. And so I would, I stole this marker, a permanent marker from a, one of the guards and I, and he, these scriptures would, would stick out and I would start scribbling them all over my wall. So these bunks that we were in were built into the wall and it's like these concrete and the walls surround you and mine was up in the wall. So I would climb, climb up in there. If you went in there though, like I told everyone, I was like, the next person that comes in the cell is going to find Jesus. Cause that's where I found him. And there's so much scripture on the wall. You were, you were going to learn a lesson there, but it was, it, I was in so much peace during that three month period that was in the, the single man cells. And during that time I, I was going to court and things, really good things started happening, right? That 10 years I was facing at first, they went down to five and I was like, God, I still can't do five years. I'm terrified. 
And then they end up giving me two years and I, I agreed. I signed the papers and I'm ready to go to St. John. I felt really blessed. And I, and I started believing the stuff I was reading in that Bible and still everything wasn't, I didn't understand everything, but the things that I read, I believed that those were promises to me. And Jeremiah 29, 11, my favorite passage in the Bible that he, he would prosper me, that he had plans for good and not for evil. And I truly believe that this was the path I was supposed to be on. My spirit was being like restored, right? And out of nowhere, out uh, at three months in, they, they asked me if I want a job in the kitchen. And all of a sudden I went from being like the highest risk to like, they're allowing me to work, which is a big deal. So they moved me into like a smaller cell. And what I did during this time was I remember making a promise to God. I was like, if you, if you tell me what to do, I'll do it. Just lead the way. Cause I'm just so lost. I don't know what to do. And so I would just share, I would do Bible study with these women and I was getting moved around all of a sudden a lot. And I felt like God was using me to go from place to place to share the word with people that were just like me. And I made a lot of, of acquaintances there, but I also made some really good friends that I'm still friends with today. I'm waiting to pull chain. Everyone's going before me and I don't understand why they're all passing me up. Explain what pulled chain means. You get a paperwork and it tells you you're going to state jail or whatever, and you have 45 days to be picked up. And that means you leave county jail and you had to do your state time. And so I was going to plain state and I was ready to go. Like my life was not bad when I was in the county jail. I was actually, I felt like I had a purpose for once. And the women that I met there, like they would come to me all the time for like, prayers or advice. And I'm like giving Joe Hall advice, like Joe House advice, like I'm a professional therapist. Okay. And then one day they call me over the intercom and they're like, uh, Hubenak. And I was like, I don't want to go to the infirmary today. I thought I had some kind of checkup before I went to stay Joe. And I was like, I don't want to go today. And they were like, you might want to do this. They were like, Hubenak, ATW. And that means all the way out. And so all of a sudden I'm five months in and they're releasing me from the county jail. I never catch chain. I like, I was like, whoa, this is insane. I've never heard of it happening before. And it doesn't happen a lot from what I understand from the county jail. That doesn't happen hardly at all. Everyone eventually pulls chain. You were expecting to go do two years and all of a sudden they're releasing you. Yes. And, and so your time doesn't start. I, I believe your time. So when you're in county jail, it's day for day. And so your, your state jail time, it's, you can get two for one. So you would, I would have got less time. Right. But to serve that all in county jail, where like the jail I was at, we call the Moco bed and breakfast because it's like this really nice, it's in a nice area. So the jail's nicer than most and you get good food and nice clothes. It's not that bad at all. Right. It's like going to, to a little, like Girl Scout camp for a little bit. Anyways, I get out and I don't know, I didn't even know I was getting released. So I didn't know where I was going to go, who was going to pick me up, what I was going to do. All I knew is I wanted to stay sober. I didn't know how I was going to do that. Now I've been sober for a good six months at this time. And I'm pretty sure that I could do it if everything goes perfectly right, but one misstep, and I know I'm right back where I was because it's almost like I was in a safe place. There were still drugs the whole time I was in jail. People were falling out from fentanyl in the jail. Pills were readily available every time the nurse came by with people's medication. They saved them and then used snort lines. I mean, that was happening all around me the whole time. 
but I stayed away from all that. But I, it's different when you step out of that gel and you're facing the real world. Everything's accessible. The next phone call I make is going to be, you know, it could be life changing. It's either going to lead me in the right direction or the wrong direction. But what's funny is that somehow my sister-in-law and my dad were already out the jail. So they, my sister-in-law has a little bit of connections and she knows people to call and she was constantly checking on me. And she was waiting to see when I was going to be transferred to Plain State, but they ended up telling her that I was being released, but nobody told me. So I didn't know this whole time. So I walk out and my dad and my sister-in-law are there. And I was like, okay. Like, it was just so weird to me. And at this time I'm connecting everything to God because he just changed my whole life, right? So I go to stay with my dad because I really don't have a place to go. And he's staying in a house he's remodeling. And there's only one bed there and a chair to sleep in. And I, I'm still focused. I'm doing my Bible study in the mornings. And I'm I'm trying to stay focused on what's gotten me through where I'm at. And I made a promise and I want to keep it, right? But that first weekend, my mom asked me to go out of town with her. And I knew that if I went out of town, I would use. Because my mom's still in her addiction. And it's very triggering when you're you're in the state that you're in still and you're around someone that's using. So I call my sister-in-law and I'm like, I don't know what to do, but if I stay out here much longer, I'm going to end up using. I don't, I don't know how to stay sober in the streets or where I was at. And so she was like, you're not going anywhere. So she let lets me go. And within a few hours, she calls me back. She's like, have your bags packed. You're going to Legacy House. Well, like, while I was on pre-child probation, long before I had gotten out, I had looked up these places because they put me in this rehab, which I eventually ran away from. It was a very short stint. Don't even need to mention it, except for the fact that while I was there, one of the places I looked up in my area was a sober living called Legacy House. But I've known the prices like $1,800 a month to live there. And I was like, there's no way I could afford that. So that was just like on your dream board. Like, where would you want to go for perfect sobriety? And that was the place. She called me. She's like, you're going to Legacy House. And I was like, what? I was like, do you even know how much that is? Like, how am I going to pay for this? And she was like, her parents decided to pay for all of it. Like, I didn't have to worry about anything. These people, like God sent angels. I'm not joking. They just start popping up everywhere. Like every need was met. I Things I could never do for myself were done and, and given to me and provided for me. And it was just crazy. So I go into sober living and that was a point. If I had went with my mom, I would have used it, but I was given this gift of a sober living and I went there and it was awesome. And at this point I've been sober six months and I'm like, I just want my kids back. Now I'm ready to have my kids back. Don't give me my kids back. Uh, I'm good. I'm sober. Give my whole life that I want back. Right. And that's not going to happen. Or initially I find out while I was in jail that the temporary custody or the temporary guardianship I gave my sister they had went while I was in jail and had it amended to where that they, they were guardians of my children and so I didn't have a say in how I was going to see them or when I was going to see them and I didn't know how my sister and brother-in-law were going to take because they were very angry at me they thought I just abandoned my kids they they saw all the outside from their perspective, right? And how sick I was and the things I, were, I was doing was sick and the people I was around were sick and that all those decisions I, were making, I was making were disgusting, but nobody knows unless you're on the inside what's really going on. From my perspective, they were being hateful. They didn't care about me. Why didn't they care enough to help me too? But from their perspective, I'm just don't care about anyone and I'm the selfish drug addict. I stay in the sober living and and 
it was like the the morning I wake up from the first night there, they're like, you're going to a meeting. I had never been into a meeting. I did not know what AA was. While I was in the rehab that I was at for this short stint before I ran away, we were in the freeze in Houston. So there was no classes. Like they didn't have any recovery. We were sleeping in a room and half the people there were high. Okay. So the, the rehab I was at was not functioning at that time. I had no idea what AA was. I didn't know what it meant to be in recovery. I didn't, I didn't go to a hospital and I didn't go to a rehab. So I didn't know what I was in for. I just knew I was in a place where people were sober and they wanted to be sober. So that next day when I woke up, they take me to what is my home group today. And they're like, you need to find a sponsor. And they're, the great thing about sober living is that they'll, they'll tell you exactly what steps you need to do and how to stay sober. And, and they'll, they'll keep you in line and you have a buddy to go everywhere with you. And you're just in a safe environment, right? And that first day that I went to the first meeting, I got a sponsor and man, I wish everybody got to go to A. Like I wish everybody would just fuck up for a minute so they can learn how great life is, right? Because I didn't know how to live before. But the girl that ended up being my first sponsor was a girl I played volleyball with in high school. So when I walked in that room and she literally, it's it's like that oh, moment when like someone comes down from heaven. That's what I was like, oh my God, she's one of my favorite people. Like she's in recovery. So um, she became my sponsor. And it's crazy going through the steps, like reading the big book, right? I would say that I'm more of an addict, like a, a drug addict, right? Than an alcoholic. But if I do, if I drink alcohol, I'm going to go to the same extremes as I do if I use, right? The core issue is that I don't know how to deal with life on life's terms. And that addict behavior, whether it's alcohol or drugs, I definitely have that gene. And so uh, she starts going through the steps with me and I, I'm, I'm working my program like my life depends on it because I know that it does. I know that any other time, if anything got too hard, what am I going to do? I'm going to become that nomadic person that runs away right into another disaster because that's what I've done my whole life. Start working the steps and I don't know, like a spiritual awakening. I had that in jail, but then there's this whole nother level of conscious contact with God, right? So that's when I feel like I actually was rocketed in the fourth dimension. Like all those crazy things you hear, well, things just started happening in my life. I'm working those steps as thoroughly, like working them constantly with my sponsor and things start happening. Like my sister invites me over to see my kids. And this is only like a few weeks into me being at a sober living and I get to see my kids. And, and that was like so amazing. I remember that day so clearly and how excited they were to see me. And it didn't matter how long you're gone or like what you've done, but your kids, they just want their parent. They don't care what happened the day before, the year before, the month. It doesn't matter. They want their parent back that they love. And my kids took me in like yesterday never happened. And we were right where we were when we left off, except for they're two years older now. And I had missed their birthday every year and Christmas for those years. So I saw a lot of shame and guilt, but thankfully I was working these steps. And not long after I first got to see them, I, I was already, I, I think I worked my steps within three months. Like I was working it, right? I didn't have a job, but I was going to all the meetings I could. And I was learning how to get my driver's license back and making a resume for the first time because I never had to have a job. Like I was doing things I'd never done before. And life was all brand new and bright and shiny. And it still is though. But the, the stuff that I learned from this program was like 
everything anyone needs to know to live life. Like I know how to not say sorry, but to actually make amends the proper way. Like I don't apologize for anything anymore. When I made my amends to my kids, I didn't say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Because when I asked for forgiveness, when I was in jail, I asked for forgiveness and I got it from the only person that has a right to forgive or to judge me. And once he forgave me, I didn't ask for forgiveness anymore, but I did go and I took responsibility for what I'd done. And I told my kids, I was like, I know how bad it was. And I'm so sorry I put y'all through this. And if you have any questions, you can ask me what was going on. But, you know, I'm going to do my best to get better. And I asked them, is there anything that I can do to make you you feel more comfortable with this whole process? And they all they told me was like, mom, we just want you to be here every day. So since that day, that's all my focus has been is giving them what they deserve, the mom that they deserve. And they are my motivation today. But there's a there's so much that goes into me staying sober. Once I started sponsoring women, that's a whole nother high in itself. And I think that today I always say for so long, I was chasing this high that I never attained. Right. And now I'm higher than I've ever been. And I'm sober like it's freaking crazy. It's the best drug ever, right? It's the most selfish program, even though they say it's not, because in all reality, me helping another person feeds my soul. Like, whether they do well or not, my hope is that they do. But like the things I'm allowed to show them and the and and when their light does come on in their eyes or like seeing their family come to you and say thank you. Those are selfish things. It feeds but feeds my 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 soul. I never thought that there'd be a chance for me to get my kids back. But today I have my kids. I still don't have them back full uh, custody, but I will be doing that very soon. And I have them all the time. I have them probably half of every month right now. Just when I think I'm, I'm like, I can't wait any, any longer. I, I want to go get them right now. God gives me a little bit more time with them. One of the miracles that happened while since I've started this journey, I was diagnosed that cancer I never took care of came back and it came back way, way, I guess five years will give you enough time for it to really grow. And I had a mass and it needed to be removed. And on May 10th, I was going to have surgery to have it removed. And I'm working full time at this time. And I'm about to have my kids for 45 days. And when, when I found out they're having for 45 days of the, the first month of summer, I was like, dang it, I don't know how I'm going to get a babysitter. What am I going to do with them during this time? But I'm so excited I'm going to have them. I got diagnosed uh, with this cancer spreading and growing, and then I had to have surgery. When I scheduled the surgery on May 10th, the doctor tells me, well, you're going to be off for, for nine weeks. And I was like, are you serious? Nine weeks? That means I'm going to have my kids every single day for the entire summer. Dude, it was like the cancer was the best blessing ever this time. And, and I see life so much differently. The moment that they told me that, I think the old me would have broken down and well, I know I would have, cause I did the first time I got it right. I, I thought I was going to die until I found out my husband was terminal. And then that, that selfishness shifted to, oh my God, I'm going to lose him. But this time it could have easily been like, God, why would you do this? I'm doing everything right. Everything, but I didn't, I knew to be thankful. I knew that he uses the bad to, to bless you with something good. You just have to do the right thing during the moment that it's happening. When I got cancer, there wasn't a sadness. I was like, I cannot wait to see what God's about to do. And sure enough, he blessed me. Like I didn't have an opportunity to like 
find a babysitter or figure out if they're going to go to camp. I had no idea how I was going to do this. I don't make a lot of money still. Yeah. So I get to have my kids for that 45 days straight. I had surgery. I had two weeks. Yeah. About two weeks before they came to me. So I was pretty much healed up in two weeks. Like I was full functioning. We went to the beach. We're going to do all the things that I've been wanting to do with them ever since I, I lost their dad. And Today I get to be that mom. Like I get, I'm a mom of three boys and I work fishing all the time. We went hunting this weekend. Like I get to live this life that I never dreamed of. And, you know, I didn't want to have a life without my husband. And I still wish that never would have happened. But my life today is great. Like, I think it's because through all of this, that pain became like my purpose and I, I really do get to see life in a whole different perspective, that perspective where at first I felt really sorry for myself because nobody understood. And the judgment that people do pass on you when they don't know what it's like to be in your shoes, right? Today, I don't have to worry about that. Like I don't, I, I live knowing that I'm doing the right thing. I live knowing God's power, like how much power he has in my life. And I get to see it constantly. Like I've had Blessing after blessing, miracle after miracle, like I see it all the time, every day. And that's a lot of the women I sponsor. The reason they come to me is because they're like, dude, we can tell you like God. And I do, I have a personal relationship with them, but it's because of the program of AA. Like it taught me how to let go of all those resentments. And I learned how to not hate myself, but love myself because all those people in those rooms, they love me. Like I have a fellowship that's amazing. And today I go to like, a lot of rallies and conferences and I do a lot of stuff within AA and it I mean the network of people that I know is insane right today I also get to help a lot of people that I grew up with they reach out to me because I I'm a recovery out loud person and I post stuff and I let people know what I what my journey's been and these people that have known me my whole life some of them thought I had died because I was gone for a minute and they're like man we thought you died and then they're the ones reaching out to me and they're like, I need help. And I'm able to do that today. And one of the other miracles I had was my mom, she's been in her addiction all these years. And one day she was taking me to go to a dentist appointment and we were just hanging out talking. And she was like, man, you look like a whole different person. Like God's just changed your life. Like, I'm so glad you're sober, all these things. We had a great day. And I didn't know how bad my mom was struggling at that time. Right before she dropped me off, she said, you know what I want to do? I want to come see you at your job one day. And I was like, okay, we can do that. And so I leave. Well, the next day at work, I get a phone call from my sister and my mom's husband. They're like, she's threatening suicide. Nobody can get a hold of her. You have to go over there. So I tell my boss, I leave work and I rush over there and I have to break in a window. My mom's on the floor. There's pills everywhere, bottles of wine. And this is not the first time my mom tried to commit suicide. While I was in Germany, I got a phone call and my mom was put on life support after swallowing a bottle of Xanax and crashing her car. And she she was dead. So she came back. I'm glad I wasn't here at the time when that happened because I definitely wouldn't have handled it. I was overseas. By the time she got out, nobody told me on the phone. We didn't have any cell phones there and anything like that. No one told me. So by the time she got out, she was the one that got to tell me because I don't think I could have handled that, right? Well, this time being sober, they call me, everybody calls me for everything. Like any kind of thing happens in my family. I'm the one that is the mediator amongst everyone. So uh, they call me, I go over there and 
she's still conscious and I pull her up and I'm like, mom, you're coming with me. I was like, remember how you said you wanted to visit my job yesterday? Well, now you get to. And so I work at a mental health hospital. And so I checked her in that day and um, she did 11 days at my hospital. And then I sent her to a rehab and she finished her stay there. And my mom will be a year sober in January. And it's so amazing. Like she's the mom, the grandma, like it's so amazing to see somebody you've known your whole life struggle with life in, in general and then to be so sick in their addiction to actually see them thrive and be happy like I never saw my mom just happy it's it's amazing like really amazing it's really cool because I get to spend a lot of time with her now and she gets to take the grandkids not just mine but like my sister-in-law and my brother they let her be a part of their lives and she wasn't allowed to do that for a long time. When my mom called after five o'clock, nobody answered her calls. And it's really lonely when all your kids are out the house and you're now at home with your husband who works all the time. So you're alone a lot and nobody wants to answer your phone calls. Like I can't imagine how that felt for her. But we couldn't talk to her because we knew that she'd be wasted. She would be crying. She did the same thing every time. And so like that perspective, right? We're on the outside, like, God, she just needs to get over it. I think I'm I'm so blessed to know the other side. I get to know both sides now. And I've been in a relationship recently with someone who's still struggling with their alcoholism. And it's been a constant battle the entire time I've been with them, which he does want to be sober. But seven years in the program has not changed him. And sometimes AA does not work for people. And I don't know what's going to work for one person or another, but he, he does continue to try. And I have a little bit more empathy for them, I think, because I know both sides, right? I'm a lot more forgiving of people. I don't get angry as easy. I don't walk around thinking everyone owes me something because they don't. I'm just thankful I get to live one more day. And I think another point I like to make, and I'll probably stop talking so much, <laughs> is that um, my little brother, or I consider him my little brother, he, he was with my family since he was like six years old. And all through his 20s, he lived under my roof and I was very close with him. He's been suffering from his addiction for a really long time. And on August 25th, I got the call that he was found in the parking lot of his job and he was dead. And uh, he had diabetes due to complications of diabetes and drug use. He died and it's man, that was my grandma had died just a couple of weeks prior to that. And her death, I was okay with because I knew she was going to see my grandpa. But his death, it hit different because I've been fighting for him for so long to get sober. Even when I wasn't sober, I was rooting for him to get sober. But once I got sober, I messaged him almost every day. And it was constantly me trying to offer help and then just give them hope. I mean, I was sending out Bible verses and telling them how much I loved them and tell them how great life was on this side. And I'm, I'm glad I got to do that. I'm glad I was sober during that time because he was reaching out and he told me how much he loved me and I know how much I meant to him. And I needed to know that because it, it broke my heart, but it didn't break me this time. I had something to fall back on. And another thing, like with losing my husband and my cousin, I had built my entire world around a person that was amazing, right? But once these people in your life are gone, once you lose them, if you don't have a solid foundation and something way bigger than any human around you, thankfully, I know God today, like if I, if I lose something that means so much to me, it's, 
it's just not as hard because I know that there's something more than this. And I also have a way to deal with things. I have somebody to talk to. It's like I'm set up for success as long as I stay plugged in. I just recently did my hours to become a recovery coach. And I learned a lot there. I learned about there's different paths for everyone and what works for what. Because a lot of times in AA, what you'll find is AA is the only way. But that's not necessarily true. My mom, she doesn't she doesn't even work AA. She literally just goes to church, goes to work, reads her Bible and spends time with their family. And that works for her. And then my dad's been sober ever since he went to prison. He was gone for five years, but he's been sober ever since that experience. And that kept him sober. So what works for one may not work for another. And so it was really cool to learn in that class that I can, I don't have to like preach AA, that there was other options available to us. And also, like my my best friend growing up, he served nine years in federal prison. The house we were living in at that time, that was when I was couch hopping. That house we were living in at the time got raided and he was sentenced to nine years in prison. When he came out, he stayed sober for periods of time and then he would relapse. And after I got sober, though, he finally reached out for help. And this time he's been, he's only about eight months sober, but he has this uh, amazing connection with people, right? And he he's very always been a go-getter. My dream is to like open up a sober living. And he's always on, like ready to go with whatever I want to do. He pitches the idea to the these this company and one of the franchise owners. It's uh a we buy ugly houses, but I don't know if you know what that is. But one of the guys there offered two properties and he's like do something with them and make it his way of giving back was going to be for us to open up these server living. So that's what I'm currently working on, which is like, I can't wait to go out there and save the world. Most of us who have been in addiction, right. Want to want to change someone else's life. Cause we've been given this gift. That's like so amazing. Like I wish everybody, everybody knew what it was like to surrender and like give it all to God. And I couldn't have learned how to do that. No matter how much church I went to, no matter how many times it was beat into my head, I had to fall to the lowest point to reach a point of desperation. So I wanted to surrender. I'm thankful for everything, like all of it. Even the things that I didn't, it wasn't my fault that happened to me, right? I didn't, I was a child when I got abused. All those things that happened to me when I was younger, I thought, how can I, how can that be my fault? But what is your fault? It's your responsibility that once those things happen to you, when you're old enough to understand, it's your responsibility to take care of that person, which I had to start forgiving them so I can move on because they were holding me back for a long time. And I say that I let that go a long time ago, but I never really did because it definitely affected relationships and how I viewed myself being sexually assaulted as a child changes a lot about who you are and how you have relationships. And part of the reason I think I could never like commit to anyone, like I never had a real relationships because I always felt like somebody's going to hurt me constantly felt like someone's going to hurt me. So I would either hurt them first or I would run away before I could get hurt. Having my husband taught me what like love was and what having a home was like. And it was the first time I had high hopes that I could have a great life. All that needed to happen though, so that I could now serve a purpose, right? Because even when things were great or when I was hurt, never did I know where I was going in life. I was always a lost puppy, right? But all of that stuff put together, created somebody I'm proud to be of today. And um, 
I know I have a purpose and I, I get to help people. And I think that's what we're all here for. Like we're all here to make someone else better. And I don't know, I get to do that today. And I'm really blessed and I'm, I'm glad I get to be a mom and a good friend to people. And I went from being homeless and hopeless to having a house and a car and a job and things I never really thought I wanted to do because I liked being taken care of. I'm not going to lie. But now that I'm doing it, man, I mean, I wake up every morning excited to face the day. And what this all taught me was like, if you give it to God, if you wake up and just give it to God, like your day can be like a treasure hunt. And throughout the day, I look for the moments when I find that blessing in it. And sometimes things get bad and, and most people are like, worried or scared. And I just get excited because I know every time I make it to the other side of some kind of adversity, something great happens every time. And it's sometimes not how I expected or what I wanted, but I don't really want for much anymore because I'm excited to just see what tomorrow holds. So like I make sure I don't live in the past. I stay in the moment. I'm where my feet are at all times because Today, as long as I do the right thing today, I don't have to regret my past and I don't have to worry about where my future goes because I'm going the right direction. So hopefully that all was enough. <laughs> so you've been sober for two years, 888 days today, two years, five months and five days. Boom. Huge congratulations. And you've literally gone from death to life. And you're a lighthouse. I Yeah, I'm the, I'm the light in the darkness. I think I know that now too. And what's really cool is, is that I know I have something to offer today and I love giving it away. Sometimes the kids I work with, I'm like, man, I'm gonna teach them all AA. I don't care if they need it or not because they just need to know how to do these things in life and their life will be great. I've been given so many great tools in the program of AA and in recovery. Like I've learned how to live an amazing life, no matter if I'm married, divorced, rich or poor, like I genuinely enjoy every single day to the fullest. And I do live life on purpose. Like everything's intentional. And I love that about you is because you share that message on purpose intentionally. 100% because I didn't even understand what that meant. In obedience, I started doing things while I was locked up, right? I started doing Bible study every morning and um, just certain, certain things I did there stuck with me and I, I continued to do them while I was out here and I do them to this day. I wake up every morning an hour early. I spend that time with God alone. I do Bible study, prayer, meditation, all those things that I was taught. And those are intentional actions I do every single day because I know that it puts me in the right state of mind. And our minds are so powerful, right? So today I don't listen to the gangster rap I used to listen to. I listen to Christian music. That, that's just me. For me, total restoration, right? I have a lot of work to do. Like there was so much damage done. And the only thing that I know for sure is that when I'm doing these things, my mind is well. And when my mind is well, everything just kind of falls into place. So I'm very intentional about how I speak to people and speak about myself. I mean, if you're constantly walking around saying you're sorry, you're telling your mind over and over that you are sorry, like you're a bad person. Or if I'm constantly talking bad about myself, I start to believe those things. Or if I'm talking mess about another person, like I did my cousin for so long, even though I loved her, all those things come back on you. Everything you put out into the universe comes back at some point. And so I'm very intentional. I make sure that the, the actions I take, the words I say, the things I do have purpose or meaning that I don't mind coming back on me. So 
on purpose, you're doing all these things. I just think it's really amazing. And that's why you literally fought from death to life out of the trenches and you're living a whole new amazing life. Yes. Another thing I love to say is I get to be a hope dealer today, right? I love bringing hope to people. And I was a drug dealer at one time and now I'm a hope dealer. So they can come to the dope man. She's going to give them hope instead of dope, right? Boom. I love it. And it's funny because a lot of people I used to serve dope to are who come to me and ask for help. And it's crazy. I could at least do better than I did before for the things I've done in my past. Because there's no changing what I've done. That's all out there. But I do get to decide what my future is. And from the point that I surrendered, you know, going forward, I I don't plan on putting anything bad out. Anything. I'm going to make sure that what people know of me and the things I do are to the best of my ability and serve a purpose. Like they, I, life is just so much better when there's purpose to it. And that's one thing about recovery is we kind of train ourselves not to create more trauma for ourselves where we have to go back and, and try right. to apologize for it. We're purposely trying to do the right things. Thank you very much for mm-hmm. coming here, being so brave, vulnerable, sharing your message. You're a part of our Silvertown Facebook group. And are there any other groups that you would like to share? So there's, there's a a women's recovery group that I'm, I, I'm really thankful I'm a part of. And if there's any women that want to check it out, it's the recover girls and what a girl needs in recovery. I'm a part of a lot of Facebook groups. I love sharing the message. I love letting people know that if they need help, they can reach, like reach me directly. I'll put my phone number on Facebook. If someone needs help, they can call. I don't care by by any any means possible if there's something that someone needed i would do it if it was helping them right you're a very bright lighthouse my friend yeah <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much have an amazing evening and thank you so much all right you too bye